Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7 is our text for today. The title of our message is Keeping the Promise. Keeping the Promise. We want to hear from God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read. You follow along in your copy. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you help us to have soft and humble hearts as we come to your word? Father, if there be any wicked way in us, would you convict us through your word? Would you, by your grace, lead us into your mercy, confessing our sin and trusting in Christ alone and what he did on the cross for our forgiveness? Lord, do in our hearts as you please today. In Jesus' name, amen. History has been shaped by promises. I think you would agree with me on that. Promises that have been made and kept, and promises that have been made and not kept. But just think for, just for one example. Think about treaties or agreements between governments or countries. Think about the impact that they have on this world, depending on whether or not they are kept. If those promises are kept, it oftentimes leads to peace. When those promises are not kept, it very often leads to conflict and even to war. Promises are very powerful things, and history has been shaped by them, and the future will be shaped by them. But the greatest promises which have the greatest impact on our world are not promises made by people or countries, but they are promises that have been made by God. Church, God is a promise-making God, and those promises, they're not small, they're not light. They have an enormous impact on this world, and they're not, the impact is not just for the here and now, but they impact our lives in this world for all of eternity. In fact, it's not wrong to say that our salvation, our rescue from sin and brokenness, our being put back in a right relationship with God, our rescue from the wrath of God, our salvation hinges upon God keeping His Word. If God keeps His Word, then our salvation in Christ is secure. But if God doesn't keep His Word, our salvation is is vulnerable, insecure, unreliable. Or in other words, our confidence that we will experience, think about the weight of this, our confidence that we will experience the eternal blessings of God rather than the eternal fury of the wrath of God depends entirely on God's promises and whether or not He keeps His Word, whether or not He keeps those promises. But here's the good news, church. 
The good news for us is that God is not merely a promise-making God. God is a promise-keeping God. That's who He is. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, drives our attention to this truth about God and about salvation. As we study this passage, we learn that salvation hinges upon God keeping His word, which He always does. Salvation hinges upon God keeping His word, which He always does. Now, we've been talking a lot about promises as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. We've seen God promise to send a man born of woman to destroy his enemy and our enemy. We've seen God promise to never destroy the earth again with a flood. We've seen God promise to bless a man named Abraham with land and offspring and protection and a worldwide impact of blessing. We've seen God promise to make this man named Abraham the father of many nations. And we've seen God promise Abraham a son through his wife, Sarah. We also have seen God's promises put into jeopardy many times by the scheming of Satan who tempts people to act out of their rebellious hearts towards God. In chapter 20, Abraham, you remember last week, chapter 20, Abraham put God's promise of a son in danger, in jeopardy, by giving his wife to another man in order to protect his own life. But we saw God protect his promise through God's omniscient, faithful, and sovereign nature. But today, as we get in, and we've seen him protect his promise time and time again, but as we get into chapter 21 today... We're not seeing God protecting his promise so that he can one day keep it. We finally get to see God keep his promise here in this passage. As we see God keep his promises, I I want us also to see three, I think, appropriate responses that we find from God's word as we consider the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. As we consider that truth about God, three responses from us that The truth about God being a promise-keeping God should lead us to. Now, the first thing that we need to notice before we even get to those responses is that God does exactly what he says he will do. I want us just to camp out on that for a few minutes and rejoice in that and celebrate that God always does exactly what he says he will do. He always keeps his word. Remember, almost 25 years earlier, God called Abraham to leave his home country along with his wife, and God promised him an offspring. We read that promise in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham an offspring. In Genesis chapter 17, God promised Abraham a son. In Genesis chapter 18, God promised Abraham a son. And he used these words, At at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So you've got throughout 25 years, you've got got God promising an offspring, an offspring, a son, a son. Multiple times God has made this promise over the past quarter of a century in Abraham's life. And now notice how Genesis chapter 21 begins. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had Promise. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Right? Just in the way that God has inspired this text to be re- written, we see the truth that God is wanting us to walk away from this passage with. We see what God is emphasizing here. As he said, as he promised, at the time of which God had spoken, three times the text refers to God's word, three times the text tells us that God kept his word. 
Friends, God does always does exactly what he says he will do. It's one of the amazing truths about our God, which we see described in numerous ways and numerous numerous places on the pages of Scripture. But I think Genesis chapter 21 is perhaps one of the most straightforward descriptions of this truth about God, that God is a God who keeps his word. He visited Sarah as he said. He did to Sarah as he promised. Sarah and Abraham had a son at the time of which God had spoken to them. Perhaps you in your life have been the victim of unkept promises, of broken promises. In some way or shape or form, all of us have experienced that, some to a greater degree than others. Broken promises hurt. They damage us. They destroy trust. But friend, I want you to know today that God always keeps His promises. You don't ever have to wonder whether or not God is going to keep His Word. And that truth about God then should lead us to trust Him. It should lead us to trust Him. I said I wanted to share with you three responses to this big truth that God always does what He says He will do. And the first of those responses is trust. Because God is a promise-keeping God, we ought to trust Him. God's promise-keeping should prompt us to trust in Him. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say in these verses, and so you should trust Him. But I think it's very clear that that's what God is wanting us to do in response to this passage. In response to the fact that He keeps His word, He wants us to trust. I think it's safe to say that Abraham and Sarah's trust in the Lord grew the day that she realized that she was pregnant. I think it's safe to say that their trust in the Lord grew as her womb grew as that baby grew inside of her. I can only imagine their trust in the Lord and their faith just grew each and every day. I think it's safe to say that their trust in the Lord grew as she endured the pains of childbirth and as he held his newborn son in his hands. God's promise-keeping should prompt us to trust in him. But I also want us to think about this, not just from the perspective of Sarah and Abraham, but I want us to think about this from the perspective of the original audience of this text. Now, Moses wrote the Torah, also the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote that, and he didn't write that when this was happening. He wasn't even alive then. He wrote this for the nation of Israel, and it was at a time where great trust in God was required of them each and every day. And unfortunately, it was in a time where they were living, the people of Israel were living in the midst of a season where they were reaping the consequences of failing to trust God and failing to take him at his word. You see, God had rescued Israel from Egypt. He had led them to the gates of the promised land, promised land that he, the God who always keeps his word, promises to his people. And, and he leads them there, but they doubted God's goodness. They doubted God's plan. They doubted whether or not God would be able to keep his promises to them. And so God sentenced them to, you know, this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their lack of trust in God until that generation had died off. Which means that the Israelites, reading this story, the words, reading these words about this story that God had inspired Moses to write, they would have been reading the story as they endured the consequences of their lack of trust in God. 
and in his word. But the Israelite wanderers also included the new generation, the children and youth, and they would be the ones who would enter into the promised land. And so for, for some of the original audience, the way that Isaac's birth is recorded here in Genesis chapter 21 would have come as a stinging rebuke to them because they had failed to trust God's word. And here God is saying, I do what I say I will do. I always keep my promises as I said, as I promised, as I spoke to them. And they would have received that as a rebuke if they had eyes to see and ears to hear. But for the children and youth in that generation of Israelites, Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 2 was teaching them and training them to not repeat the sin of their parents and grandparents. It was teaching them, this passage would have been teaching and training them to trust God, to take God at his word whenever it was time to enter back into the promised land. Church, God was emphasizing to the Israelites then, he's emphasizing to us today that he always keeps his word, which means, means we have no reason to doubt his word, which means we can and we should and we must trust God, trust his word, trust his promises. And ultimately, this promise is a salvation promise. Remember who this son is that is being born to Abraham and Sarah. Remember who, who he is. This is the son of promise, the son who is the continuation of God's promise of Genesis chapter 3 to send a man born of woman who would deliver us from Satan. This son that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 3 would be the Messiah. and He would come from the line of Abraham and Isaac. And so truly salvation, even in this moment in Genesis 21, hinges upon God keeping his word, which he always does. And so we ought to place our faith in him. We ought to take God at his word. We should and must trust his promises. So God's promise keeping should prompt us to trust him. Second response, God's promise keeping should prompt us to obey him. God's promise keeping should prompt us to obey him. Verses 3 through 4, we have Abraham's response. And it's kind of interesting. We, we don't have any words by Abraham here, but we do have action. We do have a couple of things that Abraham does. And I think we can just describe what he does simply as obedience. We can describe Abraham's response to God keeping his promise as obedience to God's word. In Genesis 17, if you'll think back to Genesis 17 for a minute, God had given Abraham uh, a couple of very specific commands. First, there was the command of circumcision. God commanded Abraham to circumcise every male in his household, every male that was added to his household, and any baby boys born to his household on the eighth day. He even specified the day on which they were to be circumcised. So that was one command. Another command we find in Genesis chapter 17 is that God told Abraham what to name his son. The son that he would have through Sarah. Now, remember the context. Because Sarah was barren, didn't have children, and because they were both very old, Abraham laughed whenever God said, Abraham, you are going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. Abraham's response was to laugh at that. God's response was basically this. I'm going I'm to paraphrase it for us today. God's response when, when Abraham laughed at that was basically this. Abraham, you can laugh all you want, but you're wrong, and I'm right, and you are going to have a son through your wife, Sarah, and by the way, you're going to name him Laughter. That's what Isaac means. It means he laughs. What a, what a 
ha ha, God got the last laugh kind of move on God's part, right? He says, you can laugh all you want, but you're wrong, I'm right, and by the way, you're going to name your son, he laughs, Isaac, Isaac. You can read that. Just so you know, I'm not making that up. It's chapter 17, verse 15 through 19. I, I paraphrase it slightly, but that's what, that's what he says. So the two commands of Genesis 17 are circumcise the males, baby boys on the eighth day, and name your son Isaac. Which I, I, I don't want to read into the text, but I kind of think that it might have been tempting for Abraham not to name his son. He laughs since the circumstances was his lack of faith in the promises of God. Now look at verses Uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 21. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. In other words, Abraham did exactly what God told him to do. Abraham obeyed. This is exactly how we will respond to God. If we trust in him as the promise-keeping God, it will lead to obedience to God's commands in our lives. This isn't the first time we've seen this pattern in Genesis. It won't be the last time we see this pattern all throughout the pages of Scripture. Faith in God. Faith in God. We receive those gracious promises of God always leads to a life of obeying God. Our obedience to God is not what puts us in a position of favor before God. It's God's choice to show us his favor that results in us being in a position of favor with God as we believe his promises. But once we are by his grace in that position of favor with God, once we have believed in those promises of God, then we will respond with obedience to God. James, James, half brother of Jesus, he he said this in his letter to Christians. James chapter two, verse 26, James wrote, Faith apart from works is dead. He's not saying that works are necessary to earn God's love. He's saying that if you say you have faith in God, but there's not evidence in your life of that by the way that you're living, by living in obedience to God's commands, then that faith is a dead faith. It's it's not a faith that saves. Because faith in the Lord always leads to obedience to the Lord. And so Abraham responds to God by keeping his promise, by obeying the commands of God. Maybe there's an area of your life today where you say, when I look at this area of my life, if other people were to look at this area of my life, it's not a display of faith in Jesus. It might be a display of faith, but it's not in Jesus. This area of my life is showing that my hope, my satisfaction, my joy, I'm seeking it somewhere else, not Jesus. And if that's so, then we need to repent of that. And God's gracious to forgive as we confess those sins to him, but we need to turn from that and not do that anymore. We want to let the promises of God drive us to obedience to him. And so God's promise keeping should prompt us to trust him. God's promise keeping should prompt us to obey him. And let me share with you the third response that I think we see here. And that's this. God's promise keeping should prompt us to glorify him. God's promise keeping should prompt us to glorify him. So verses 1 through 2. We saw God keep his promise, which I think leads us to trust him as the promise-keeping God. Verse 3 through 4 focuses on Abraham's uh, obedience to God's commands. And now we get to verses 5, 6, and 7. And these verses focus on Sarah's response, which highlights the fact that God alone has done this. God has done the impossible, which when we 
when we take that truth to heart, should lead us to give him the credit, to give him the glory. Now, because we've studied the previous chapters, we know that this birth is nothing short of miraculous. This birth is nothing short of miraculous. Uh, Both Abraham and Sarah are old. They're old. Chapter 17 told us that Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, and when it comes to having children, that's old, okay? That's old. Chapter 18 told us explicitly that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That didn't mean she had stopped being a woman. What that meant, and we talked about this then, it meant that her body had gone through the natural transition which leaves a woman unable to conceive and bear children. That's what that's talking about. It's just talking about life. Plus, Sarah, let's add to that, Sarah had never been able to have children. Even in her childbearing years, she was barren. Do you remember the way Sarah was introduced to us back when her name was Sarai and Abraham's name was Abram? The way she was introduced all the way back in chapter 11, when the very first time we heard about Sarai, do you remember what the text said? It said, she was barren. Sarai was barren. She had no children. That, that is the way we were introduced to Sarah. Now, we learned some other things last week about Sarah, like she was Abraham's half-brother that we didn't know until last week. But from the very beginning of us learning about Sarah, we've known this truth about her. She's barren. Even in her childbearing years, she was barren. So here is a 90-year-old woman who has been barren her whole life, is in the stage of life where even if she, even, even if she hadn't been barren previously, she would no longer be able to have children. And she's married to a 100-year-old man. And with that context, then I think we are able to understand Sarah's wonder, Sarah's amazement, and I think implied here, Sarah's worship. Verse 5, we are told once again, notice how the text emphasizes the miraculous nature over and over. It reminds us this is Sarah that Abraham's having a child with. This child Sarah bore to Abraham. Chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I mean, the text has already told us that multiple times, but it, God wants us to see that again. Abraham is 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then verses 6 and 7, we find Sarah speaking. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, verse six is obviously using a play on words with Isaac's name, right? We see the word laughter, laughter, laughter. That's what Isaac's name means. He laughs. And so his very name was a reminder, remember, that both Abraham and Sarah, chapter 18, chapter 17, Abraham laughed, chapter 17, Excuse me, chapter 17, Abraham laughed, chapter 18, Sarah laughed. It's a reminder that they laughed when God told them that they would have a son. But that being said, it's also a reminder, his name, laughter, that God can do what we think is impossible. He can do the impossible. So she says that God has made laughter for her through giving her this son and that others are going to laugh over her when they hear what has happened. I mean, news probably is going to spread. This doesn't happen every day. Now, there's some different interpretations of verse 6. Um, and because, because Abraham and Sarah's laughter was not a good thing back in chapter 17 and 18 because they were laughing because of their lack of faith in God, some interpreters take this laughter in chapter 21 negatively. And they have reason to do that. I don't know. It's not something worth arguing over. And they think that Sarah is saying people are going to make fun of her. They're going to they're mock her. 
And, and actually, if we go ahead, skip ahead just a couple of verses, we're going to see laughter used in that way. Because Ishmael, I'm not going to get into that part right now, but Ishmael is going to laugh at Isaac. And there it's going to mean he's mocking him. He's mocking Isaac. And so I can understand why some might think that this laughter here is kind of in a negative way. Sarah's kind of despairing at what has happened. But I don't think that's what's happening in verse 6. I think this laughter from Sarah is a laughter of joy. I think it's a laughter of joy. I mean, for one thing, there's nothing specifically in the context to indicate that Sarah is, is worried or concerned that, that, that she's had this son. And to think that a woman who has been barren her whole life and is now holding her son would have her joy squelched by the concern of what other people are going to think about her, it's just kind of hard for me to, to, to believe. But even greater evidence that this, I believe, is the laughter of rejoicing comes from the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Now we have, this is after, this is many, 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 many years after this, take, this event takes place. The prophet Isaiah is prophesying and he says this. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now you say, well, that's a pretty cool verse of Scripture, but how in the world are you saying that that has, that has anything to do with Sarah? Well, that's where Paul comes into the picture. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, which our youth have been studying on Wednesday nights, and so y'all may pick up on this a little bit. Y'all may not have got to this part in Galatians yet. But in Galatians chapter 4, Paul really goes back and he talks about chapter 21 of Genesis extensively. And we'll actually look more at that when we get to the rest of chapter 21. But for now, I want to point out, that in Galatians chapter 4, now New Testament letter, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1. I mean, word for word, that verse, seeing, O barren one, rejoice, break forth into singing, you have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate ones will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He, he quotes that in his letter to the church in Galatia. And what's the context? He's talking by name about Sarah and Isaac. He's talking about God keeping his promise and salvation comes and is built on the promises of God. And he says, he's talking about Sarah and he quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren one, break forth into singing and joy, rejoice. And so because of that and those reasons, I think that what we see in Genesis chapter 21 is Sarah rejoicing. This is the laughter of rejoicing. So here's what has happened. Here's what has happened. God has turned, by his grace, the laughter of doubt into the laughter of rejoicing in the life of Sarah. And God is the one who did it. That's really the point here. God is the one who did it. He gets the credit. The text drives home that point in verse 7. Sarah asks a rhetorical question. It's a question, a rhetorical question, a question that doesn't need answering because the answer is obvious, or at least it should be obvious. She asked this question, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who would have told Abraham, your wife, your, for, for her whole life barren, now past the age of childbirth, 90-year-old wife would ha- is going to have a, have a child? 
Who would have said that to Abraham? And there's actually two answers to this question, which end up being one answer. The first answer is no one. (laughs) No one would say that. No one in their right mind would say that to Abraham. No one would have said that Abraham and Sarah would have a child. No one would have said that an old man and an old barren woman past this age of childbearing, the stage of childbearing, would have a child. But if we consider the question in the context carefully, I think there is a second answer to that question. The second answer to the question of who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have a child? Answer, God. God is the one who would say something like that. You put those two together. What's the answer to that question? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would have a child? No one but God. No one except God. God alone. What's the point here? The point is that God is the one responsible for the birth of this baby. The passage began with these words. The Lord visited Sarah. And the passage ends with the implied response to Sarah's question. God has done this. God has done the impossible. The writer of Hebrews, in writing about Sarah's faith, very clearly gives God the credit for the birth of Isaac. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah didn't do this. Abraham didn't do this. Yes, it involved them. But God was the one who made this happen in church. When God keeps his promises, then he gets the credit. He is worthy of the credit, which means he is worthy of the glory. I believe Sarah's laughter is a laughter of praise, a laughter of rejoicing that God has done great things for me. A laughter that brought glory to God. In the words of Psalm chapter 30, verse 11, notice the emphasis here. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Friend, when you've trusted in the promises of God, your life will be marked not merely by an obedience that comes from a sense of obligation, but an obedience that comes from a heart of joyful worship to the Lord who has promised great promises and has kept his word. God's promise keeping ought to prompt us to glorify him, which means what what does that mean to glorify God? What does that mean? There's so many ways that maybe we could say this, but, but I think to glorify God means that we live in a way that others can clearly see that God is our joy and our treasure and our hope and our life. That God is our purpose for getting up in the morning and doing what we do and living the way we live. That God is our reason for trusting Him when it's easy and when it's hard. For obeying Him when we're praised for it and when we are mocked for it. To glorify God means that we live in such a way that people can see in our lives that God is worth more to us than all the money and all the material possessions and all the power and the praise of man and all the fame that this world could offer. And that we would gladly sacrifice everything, including our very lives, in order to honor Him and serve Him and point others to Him and His glory. That's what it means to glorify God. To treat Him in a way that He is worthy of. And that's the life of someone who has seen and experienced the trustworthiness of God who always keeps 
His Word. The promise-keeping God. As we see Him, as we experience His promises, it ought to prompt us to trust Him. It ought to prompt us to, to obey Him with our lives and to do that for the praise of His glory. Church, we've got to remember that Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 7 is not merely a description of a joyous moment for a barren woman and her husband. It's not merely about God giving Abraham and Sarah a son. This is about God keeping his promise to Abraham to give him an offspring through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Friend, God's promise keeping to Abraham and Sarah may seem far removed from you in your life today, but it's not. You see, God keeping his promise to Abraham and Sarah opened the door for him to continue keeping his promises. And God kept keeping his promises down through the ages until one day he kept his promise from Genesis chapter 3 to send a man born of woman who would destroy the enemy. Paul wrote to the Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem so that we might receive adoption. God had kept his promise about 33 years after he kept that promise to send the deliverer. God kept another promise. God had promised in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that the coming king, the Messiah king, would ride into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. And this fulfilled promise would lead to praise and rejoicing. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now we're back in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so one Sunday, which we now call Palm Sunday, the Son of God rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and on the colt of a donkey. And the people responded with shouts of praise. Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means salvation has come. Hosanna in the highest. God kept his promise. But that celebration was very short-lived. You see, people paid attention to some of God's promises, but not all of God's promises. Because God, he had also promised that one that the one he would send to save his people would also die for his people at the hand of his people. Later in Zechariah, go back to that Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah. God promised this, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Church, God kept that promise too. For less than a week after the crowds rejoiced with shouts of praise towards the Son of God, saying, Hosanna, praise to God in the highest. They were hurling shouts of cursing toward the Son of God. And they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And they led him up. That hill called Golgotha. And what did they do? Remember the words of Zechariah the prophet. They pierced his hands and his feet as they nailed him to the cross. And they pierced his side to make sure that he was completely dead. 
God kept. He kept His promise. There was another promise. There was another promise, church. God had promised that His King, that He was sending, that though He would die and be placed in the grave, that He would not stay there in the grave. Listen to the words of Psalm. Back to the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. God promised this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. A verse quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ. A verse that the the New Testament church used to describe what was happening when Jesus rose up from the grave. So the Sunday after Palm Sunday, on the third day after the Holy One had been nailed to the cross, the crucified King rose up from the grave to live and to reign forever. God kept His promise. Listen, God's Son was born as a human. He was worshipped as the King of salvation. He was killed as God's cursed enemy. And He was resurrected as the conqueror of death. All just as God had said, just as God had promised, all at the time at which God had spoken to his people. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And if you back up just another verse, you find that Paul is talking about Jesus Christ, the son of God. All of God's promises find their yes in him. Friend, we are all sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. But God in His grace promised to descend and to deliver to save us from our sin. And the birth of Isaac was one fulfilled promise in a line of fulfilled promises that would ultimately lead to God fulfilling His promise to provide for us a way to be cleansed forever from our sin. I want to read one more promise from the book of, you may have guessed it, Zechariah. Right after God promised that He would be pierced, He promised this in chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened. And then he goes on and he promises what the purpose of that fountain will be. On that day, there shall be a fountain open to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Church, salvation hinges upon God keeping his word, which, praise God, he always does. And so have you responded to this promise-keeping God with trust in His salvation promises? Have you believed in Jesus, this promised Messiah, for the forgiveness, the cleansing of your sin? He is the only way of salvation because He is the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. And He is a secure way of salvation because God always keeps His word. God said that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a promise from a God who always keeps his promises. And if you have believed in Jesus, are you growing in your trust in him? Are you growing in your obedience to him? Are you growing in giving him the glory That Jesus is worthy of. As we see God's promise of salvation fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. Leading to the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It should prompt us to trust in Him. To obey Him. And to give Him all the glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You so much. 
that you are a God who always keeps your promises. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to obey you and help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray.